Good morning. Thank you. Uh, good morning to you, whoever, whoever you are out there. Hope you guys had a great week, uh, especially for those that maybe went around your neighborhood, met some neighbors, got some candy uh, on Halloween. I, I'm fortunate enough to live in a family uh, where three out of the five of us have uh, peanut allergies. Uh, and that's not me. And so what happens at the end of every Halloween night is I get this huge bucket of uh, Reese's Pieces and O'Henry bars and the whole, the whole gamut. Uh, it lasts me for at least three days, and uh, it's delicious. We're, we're starting a new series, uh, as Colton mentioned, Strangers in a Strange Land. And this, uh, I'm really looking forward to the series. This, uh, the series is, uh, it's kind of roughly based out of the, the book. There's a book called The Daniel Dilemma, uh, written by Chris Hodges. And so we've taken some concepts out of that book and looking at the book of Daniel. And, and considering what it means to be a people that live with grace and truth in a culture of compromise. What does it mean to live with grace and truth in a culture of compromise? And we have, uh, the, the book of Daniel is, is a great book that just helps us uh, understand this because Daniel is, if, if you understand your Old Testament books, there's, uh, there's the law books, which are the first five books in your Bible, and then you have uh, the historical books, and then you have some wisdom books, and that's like the Psalms and Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, and then you have the prophetic books, and, and those are kind of breaking up into the major and minor prophets. And the book of Daniel is in the prophetic section. And so D Daniel reads like a history book. So D Daniel, if you, if, and, and Daniel is written in, in two halves. You have the first six chapters, which are, which are kind of historical uh, content, and then you have the next six chapters. But it's history and prophecy together. And so as we study the book of Daniel and what happened in that culture in that time with Daniel and his friends, uh, we're not only looking back at something that's happened, but we're also, as you'll see, we're, we're watching almost uh, a story that's been on repeat for hundreds and thousands of years, uh, where God's people have found themselves as strangers in a strange land, trying to struggle with what it means to live with grace and truth without compromising who God's called us to be. The word culture comes from the root word cultus, which has connotations of agriculture and worship. And so the culture is basically the, an idea. It's what happens when a group of people gets together. And what is of high value is really what takes on a culture, or what we start to talk about as a culture. So when you say, what's Calgary culture? What's Canadian culture? Uh, what's the Western culture? It, it's, it's what forms when a group of people get together, and they have certain values or attributes. And the Bible would say there's, there's uh, even use the word worship. There's certain idols or things that we have elevated as a culture, as a people, and that has created a culture. So our worship, our priorities actually create a culture, culture among us. And so here in the book of Daniel, we have this culture that Daniel and his friends find themselves in, the culture of Babylon. And the Jewish people were in exile. And so if, if you're familiar with your Old Testament history, uh, the Assyrians came and basically uh, captured uh, the northern part of Israel. And then uh, eventually later, the, 
The Babylonians came and captured the southern kingdom, which included uh, Judah and Benjamin. And the story of the Old Testament people is this repeated story of being in captivity, of being uh, under oppression of a world power, so to speak. And so you had the Babylonians that were over uh, Judah and the southern kingdom, and then they were conquered by the Persians, and then uh, later came the Greeks, and then later came the Romans, and that's, that's where we kind of see the stories of Jesus in the Gospels in the first, at uh, the beginning of your New Testament. But the people of God has always been in a culture, other than probably about a 200-year blip in the Old Testament, has always lived in a culture that wasn't the one that they wanted to create. And, this, and the book of Daniel was l- likely written actually when those Jewish people were under Greek oppression looking back at their history in Babylon. So they're looking back in their history and trying to figure out what that history means for them today. Babylon is modern-day Iraq, just to give you a bit of a context. So Babylon, modern-day Iraq... And so when we, when we look and we, we read back into the story, you're going to find one of two things that are going to happen. Remember that the story was written for an oppressed people living in a dominant, uh, a dominant world power, under the oppression of a dominant world power. And do we read the story as Babylonians or as Jewish people under... Oppression. I'm using that metaphorically, obviously. And you'll know as we read through it and as we go through the series, if, if, you have, if you're angry or threatened at the concepts, that's probably an indication that you've aligned yourself with Babylon in some way. This book was written for people that were poor, that were oppressed, that didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow, that were looking to God for some encouragement for today. And so here, we're going to begin at Daniel chapter 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So, King, so Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz. Can everybody say Ashpenaz? It's a fun name, isn't it? Ashpenaz. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah, royal family, and other noble families who had been brought into Babylon as captives. Select only strong and healthy and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. So this whole idea of being trained for three years, it's being, this idea of being assimilated, they would be assimilated into Babylonian culture. They'd be trained with the language, they'd be trained with the literature, and maybe today when we think about being trained in culture, we don't think so much of literature and books, but what about screen time and commercials and, uh, and social networking? You know, what is the literature that we actually get trained in today? 
Even the idea of eating the royal food, which we're going to come back to in a second, was, was a way that the Babylonians would use to train and assimilate or try to Daniel and his friends. So Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah were the four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. So we see now the indoctrination of a culture into a generation. And so we need to look at the book of Daniel as a playbook for us as followers of Jesus living in our culture, our Canadian, Calgarian culture. And remember, culture is what the masses, what they worship, what they prioritize, and then that takes on a life of its own, and we call that culture. And so our enemy, the devil, uses culture as a as a way to influence us. And I'm not saying that culture is bad, but culture is an expression of what a group of people choose, right? And so if, if we have a, a city, a community, a nation that is choosing not to align themselves with God's plan for their lives, it's going to have an impact and a ripple effect on our culture. So culture has an agenda. Culture has an agenda. And, and if you have your words to live by, you'll see there's a few fill-in-the-blanks there for you. Culture has an agenda. And we'll see strategically how this happens. The chief staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. The first thing, the first agenda that culture has for us is it wants to change our identity. It wants to change our identity. Names are always a sign of ownership. Are you believing what culture tells you about you, or are you believing what God tells you about you? Who names you? And I'm not talking about your actual name, but the labels that we take on. Any of you guys have nicknames, got made fun of when you were a kid? No? Nobody? Just me. Just me, I guess. Okay, this will be a therapy session for me. Uh, so, growing up, I played on... I played on sports teams with my older brother all the time, uh, and, and our last name is Dick. And so through the sports teams we played on, I was always known as Little Dick. Harsh. It was a harsh life I had to live. And this was the name that teammates would call me, that other people would call me. And often in sports, you'll see that that there's this idea of called trash talking where you name or you put down your opponent. It's very popular in basketball, and I know it happens in other sports too. Where you put down the other opponent. I remember one time uh, I was playing some pickup ball in downtown Calgary, uh, and I forgot my contacts. And so all I had was my glasses. And, uh, and I remember going out and playing basketball with these guys downtown Calgary, competitive pickup ball on a Saturday morning, and they called me Tim Horton the entire game. That wasn't, that wasn't a compliment. Uh, and, and so they're trying to get in my head, calling me Tim Horton over and over again, trash-talking me. Yeah, because the belief is if, if they can name you, then they can own you. That's what trash talk is in sports. If I can name you, if I can put you down, if I can get you to, to think that I'm superior to you, then I can own you. I don't know what names you had growing up, but even labels like stupid. You know, I've talked about this before from stage. I, I, I failed every major course in grade 10. 
You know, I, I did really good at phys ed and art and band. Killed it at phys ed, art, and band. But failed social, math, sciences, all those courses that you need to pass. I did terrible at them. And so there was a label that I felt like I took on when I was uh, in grade 10 of stupid. My classmates, you know, or teachers, the way that I felt like teachers were talking, I started, I started to take on this label of, of stupid. You know, the irony of God, that God would actually call, call me to preach and teach the Bible when that was a label that I had as a teenager. Um, quite cool. Or slacker. And, and, and sometimes names aren't bad names. We, we can take pride in names. You know, there's times in my life where I, I tried to take on the identity of, you know, being a jock and playing, you know, I played a lot of basketball and volleyball growing up. You know, if I could be a jock, and that was a name that I kind of took pride in. But it was a cultural name. Or a musician. Or a pastor. It's a name that I can take on. But is that primarily who I am? What, what, what are the names that your family, your culture, your workplace actually put on you? You know, we're coming into the Christmas season. If you're familiar with the Christmas story, you'll know that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, was not allowed to name Jesus. God came and revealed what Jesus' name was going to be to Joseph. Why? Because Jesus needed to know that his authority was not on earth but in heaven. Jesus' heavenly Father had a name for him. The name signifies who your authority is and what your purpose is. That's what your name is. Whoever gives you a name has authority over you, and the name communicates your purpose. That's why often in Scripture it talks about the meaning of names, because uh, it's communicating not only who gave the name, where their authority came from, that's why you see all, all these genealogies throughout Scripture, but it also indicates the purpose that God had for that person. And your purpose is your identity in action. Your purpose is your identity in action. God wants to name you, and he wants to give you a purpose. That's why we do starting, you know, when you hear us talking about starting point all the time, it's, it's, our, it's a four-week class that's intended to help people discover their purpose. And really what we're doing is helping them discover their identity and then having that identity move into action. The devil will give you a script for your life that is not the script that you should be living by. God created you for a reason, for a purpose. He has a name for you. And the first way that we try and get, that the culture, the enemy tries to distract us from our purposes by changing our name. And so here we have the, ch the name change. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Whoa. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Let's try that again. Everybody say Belteshazzar. I need some help up here. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Everybody say Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Everybody say Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. Abednego. You guys have heard those names before from VeggieTales. Can I get an amen? So, some, some of you guys know the Daniel stories because you watched a cartoon of a bunch of vegetables and you're like, hey, I know this story. You're going to find. Like, hey, this is like reliving. Well, some of you it was your childhood. Uh, some of you it was your 30s. You watched these... Uh, So culture comes and tries to rename Daniel and his friends. 
And so we have Daniel, which means God is my judge. That's the meaning of the name Daniel. But Babylon comes and tries to give him a new name, Belteshazzar, which means lady protect the king. That's what the name means. And you laugh. He, he gets given a girl name. And I think this is, this is worth pausing here for a second. Given our culture and our time, it's important to know that in every pagan culture, every culture that, that has not decided to align itself with the values of the kingdom of God, there has been gender confusion. Gender is, is one of, a core piece of helping us actually identify who we are. And they changed the gender of Daniel's name, an inherent part of each person's identity. They gave Daniel this girl's name, and they also shifted the focus, and you'll notice the focus from God to humans. It was a switch from accountability to an all-powerful God to that of a woman who must protect her human king. The meaning of Daniel's new name was the antithesis of his former Hebrew name. So Babylon comes, tries to rename Daniel. We have Hananiah, which means Yahweh has been gracious. And Hananiah gets renamed to Shadrach, which means I am fearful of God. So we see here the Babylonians inverted the focus from God being good to God being bad. Instead of God being gracious, kind, and loving, this new name echoed with the kind of fear that you'd feel like you're standing before a tyrant, a maniac, a monster. God's not for you. He's against you. Hananiah, God's for me. Shadrach, God's actually against me. Mishael... Who is what God is? You can, you can kind of hear the confidence in that, in that statement. Meshach, I'm despised, contemptible, and humiliated. From a focus on God, and you'll see it again, to a focus on self. Again, Babylon subverted the goodness of God, and now instead of distorting God, this name's this name distorts self. The other names kind of distort who God was. This name distorts who I am. Confidence in God to cowardice in self. What about Azariah? Yahweh has helped. Yahweh has helped. And then Abednego, servant of Nebo. Azariah went from being a Helped by God, helped by Yahweh, to being a slave of another man. So Babylon comes to assimilate, and the first thing Babylon does, the first agenda culture has, is to change our identity, change who we are. When culture shifts, we must know who we are. When culture shifts, don't let your identity shift. We live in a shifting culture. Would you guys agree with that? It's shifting constantly. But don't let your identity shift with culture. And we see that in the names. The shifting between male, female, focus on God, focus on man, all-powerful all God, to a God that's weak and needs protecting. Focus on 
confidence in God to being a, becoming a coward, from being a son of God to being a slave of man. The enemy wants to distract us from our focus on our relationship with God and instead focus it on pleasing others, being enslaved to their approval. And this is hard in our culture. It's easy to get caught up in the number of comments and likes in our social media. It feels good, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel good to have a lot of likes on your, on your post? Come on, you guys in the front here. Brody, doesn't it feel good? Feels good. Especially when you hit triple figures on that, on that like button. Come on, you hit that. Absolutely. That photo that you take. We, 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 li- we live in this, this culture that is constantly inviting us to gain constant approval. It's intoxicating, a 24-hour access to constant approval. But did you know that anxiety among our young people has never been higher than it is right now? Anxiety, depression. Identity formation, when it's up to you, is hard work. Our, Our young people live in a culture right now where they have to form their own identities. And they're in constant competition to differentiate themselves from everybody else in their world. Identity formation is hard work if it depends on you. And our our identities shift when we value what others think of us more than what God thinks of us. And if we believe that God made us, then maybe it would be wise to let the one who made us be the one to name us. When culture shifts, we must know who we are. In verse 8, the story goes on. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. He says, I'm not eating that food. I'm not going to defile myself. So culture shifts. He finds himself in Babylon. He he takes a stand. And, And notice that he asks for permission. Uh, the, the posture of Daniel is incredible in the book of Daniel. You know, he's not, he's not just like digging his heels in. He does stand, but he stands with like this, uh, this, this honor even when he's in a foreign land. And we know that Jesus summarizes all of Scripture with two things, love God, love people. And I believe that this is behind, the heart of those two things is what behind Daniel's decision to stand and, and resist eating the king's food. Love of God. Daniel didn't eat the food because of allegiance to God. He didn't defile himself by eating food sacrificed to idols. He chose not to. He chose to put God first. I'm not going to compromise God first. But I think what often gets missed here is Daniel's decision not to defile himself because of his love for his people. On whose back was this food being brought in on? The slaves. What were Daniel's people eating while Daniel was in the king's palace? Not the king's food. So what is the food and wine that the modern emperors in our time are offering us? It might be food, it might not be food. So much of our advertising and marketing is directed towards changing people's habits and enticing them to buy products that will become necessities that we simply can't live without. North American consumers are especially, 
especially are not used to asking serious questions about our consumption habits. In fact, we don't ask each other questions about our consumption habits because it's a, this is a private matter. But what are we promoting with our consumption habits? Not just about what is damaging to us, but what is our, what is our money and our time actually going to promoting? There's a, there's a guy named John Woolman, uh, and he himself refused to wear certain articles of clothing that were either dyed or made by means of slave labor. In his essay, A Plea to the Poor, he asked this question. He asked a series of lifestyle questions, but, but in it he says, May we look upon our treasures, the furniture of our houses, and the garments in which we array ourselves, and ask whether the seeds of war have any nourishment in these possessions or not. I think a call to faithful resistance in our culture might require the modern Christ follower to think through a whole new approach to how we live our lives so that we're not actually building a certain lifestyle on the backs of those people that we're actually called to come alongside of. When we think of SunWest engagement with Thailand and Burma or Myanmar or El Salvador or the work that we do in Mexico that Colton was talking about, you know, isn't it ironic that we, that we would go and try and bring hope and uh, liberation to these people that are less fortunate than us, uh, but yet we can have spending habits and consumer habits that actually promote and perpetuate uh, this upside-down oppressive system that we say that we're against? You know, if you really want to mess yourself up, anybody want to mess themselves up? Um, uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm doing aspirational preaching here uh, because I, I need help here. But there, there's an app that you could download, and it's called uh, Better World Shopper. And this app will actually rate the different companies and restaurants and uh, suppliers that you and I interact with every day, and it will tell you which ones are actually uh, being ethically ran are, are for the people and which ones are actually oppressing people. And it has a whole grade system that you can... And so, you know, I don't care. You can pull out your phone right now uh, while I'm speaking. And you can download Better World Shopper. But don't do it if you don't want to mess yourself up. If you, if you start going through that list, you know, Kraft Dinner's never going to taste the same again. I'm just, I'm just warning you. I'm warning you from the get-go. It'll mess you up. Culture has an agenda. Not only does it want to change our identity, it wants to compromise our standards. And that's what this whole episode and the story with Daniel is about, where he's, where he's trying to figure out how to engage with the invitation from the king to eat like the Babylonians, to eat like the king. He's trying to figure out what's, what is the standard I'm going to live by. Am I going to compromise my standard as a worshiper of Yahweh, as a worshiper of God, when I'm in the shifting culture. When culture shifts, we must reaffirm our convictions. Convictions require you to decide what's right ahead of time. If you wait till the moment that you need to figure out what your convictions are to decide what your convictions are, it's going to be too late. We must reaffirm our convictions. We must decide on our convictions before culture shifts. We can see the value of this quite easily in relationships. My wife Lisa and I have been married for 14 years. Did, did I, I, I was looking for her affirmation, but uh, 
she thinks she's just my kid. I think it's been 14 years. I think we're coming up on year 50. Somewhere in there. Um, and I'm the only guy who has ever kissed her. Woo! You know what that makes me? It makes me the best kisser in her world. I, I'm the only guy that's ever kissed her. Only guy that's ever going to kiss her. Yeah, and we, we both had a conviction growing up that we, were, we weren't going to have sex before we got married. And when we got married, it was this gift that we were able to give each other, though we had never met until we, got, uh, until we met each other in, in college. But it's a conviction we made ahead of time. It's a conviction I made ahead of time as a, as a young boy that I wasn't going to do that. And so because I made up my mind about that, I was able to actually orient my life in such a way before I ever got into those compromising situations. When Lisa and I got married, we took one word out of our vocabulary, divorce. And I I can tell you that her and I have never said the word divorce or even talked about the idea of divorce in 14 years of marriage. It doesn't mean that it's been easy. In fact, there's been really hard times. But it's never been a word, it's never been an idea that we've been willing to engage because we made up our minds a long time ago before we got married that this was going to be our conviction, that this was our belief. We weren't going to shift that belief regardless of what was happening in our relationship. It was never going to be on the table. We need to know our convictions before temptation comes our way, before the culture shifts. We already need to know what we believe. And I'm not talking about certitude, and I've talked about this a lot of time. I'm not talking about doubts that you might have around what you think. I'm talking about the value system that you base your life on. Daniel knew what his convictions were long before he found himself in Babylon. He didn't change who he was when he got to Babylon. Verse 9, now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel, but he responded, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths, your youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. So Daniel spoke with the intendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please, everybody say, Test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. Test us. Come back to that in a second. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. Test us. Culture will always create a confrontation. Culture will always have a test. And I know sometimes in church we talk about test, and we'll probably talk about this next week, but test and temptation. Do you know what the difference between a test and a temptation is? Your response. That's the difference. The difference between a test and a temptation is your response. In fact, in the, in the, in the Greek language, it's, it's, it's like the same word. When Jesus gets tempted in the desert... It says he's tested or he's tempted, but it turns out to be a test because Jesus responds appropriately. Right? If we give in to the temptation, in retrospect, it's a temptation, right? And so the test or the temptation determines on how we respond. So when culture shifts, we must respond the right way. How do we respond when we're tested? It's critical that we respond the right way. And by and large, the church isn't responding the right way, I, I would say. We, we often flip-flop between two extremes. 
We have the you're wrong and I'm right extreme. We have so many arrogant, loud Christians in this world that if the world listens to them long enough, they, they, they want nothing to do with Jesus if that's how Jesus sounds. You just go on, on social media for any length of time and you're going to run into them. I'm right, you're wrong. And even if that's you, you, technically you might be right on whatever issue you're talking about. Technically you might be right. But if it's not helpful, it's not right. If you're actually turning people away from Jesus, you're not responding the right way. God never called us to be right. He called us to be effective. If you think the point is to be 100% right on everything, you're going to have a hard time representing Jesus to people that need Jesus. God didn't call us to be right. He calls us to be effective. And maybe you're right, but it's not helping the person, even if it, even that person, and it's wrong, even if you are right. And then there's the other side that says, well, Jesus calls us to love everybody. And so we, we don't ever say anything hard. We don't ever stand up for truth because the, the whole point is just love. And, we, and in our culture, we equate love with tolerance and acceptance. I can accept you and love you, but not necessarily agree with what you're doing or what you're saying. There's two extremes. The arrogant, I'm right, and you're wrong, and then the other side that doesn't stand up for anything. And there's a balance that is needed between the two. There needs to be, that we need to strike a balance. And how many of you guys have ever been to camp where there's been a, there's been a lake there? Have you guys ever been on a blob? Anybody ever been on a blob? All right. So here's the way a blob works. It's like this, it's like this big air-filled balloon that kind of floats in the water, and you put one person on the end of it, and then, you, and then you climb up to the diving board thing, and you jump off the platform, and you jump on it, and then the person flies off the other end as the air transfers through the, the tube. And most camps now have uh, this, this rule where the balance of weight needs to be equal. When I was a counselor back in the day, they didn't have that rule. And so... So I'd take, I'd, I'd take other counselors, there'd be two or three of us, we'd get, we'd get up on the, on the diving board and we put like this little uh, eight-year-old peewee camper at the end of the blob, and we'd just jump off that thing, and they would launch like 40 feet in the air, land on their head, on their stomach, they'd be crying. We thought it was great. The other kids thought it was great too. But, you know, there was enough injuries uh, from the blob. Uh, and, in fact, if you guys know John Hamm, is one of our worship leaders here. Ask him about his last injury. He, got, he was blobbing. That's how he got injured. Um, but th- there, there needed to be th- this decision to keep, uh, <laughs> to keep people safe, uh, that there had to be a balance between the weight. Or maybe it's helpful. You can think of a teeter-totter. Have you ever tried to, t- when I used to teeter-totter with my kids at the playground, that's so exhausting. It's like I'm doing all the work, right? There needs to be a balance, grace and truth. There needs to be a balance. Jesus was total perfection, righteousness with skin on. Yet who was it that loved to hang out with him? It was the, pro- it was the prostitutes, the sinners, the traitors that were tax collectors. The people whose society had pushed out were the people that loved hanging out with Jesus. Yet Jesus was complete righteousness, complete perfection. You know who didn't like hanging out with him was the religious folks. Makes you wonder. He never compromised who he was. 
and what he believed, but people felt loved by him at the same time. I'm going to come back to this in a sec. John 1, 1 to 14 says this, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Talking about Jesus. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Truth is God's standard. Grace is God's favor. We need both. Without truth, we are corrupt. But without grace, we're condemned. Without truth, we've become worldly. Without grace, we become judgmental. Truth without grace is mean. There's a lot of mean people in this world that claim to be followers of Jesus. Yet I'm sure if you ask the prostitutes and the, the outcasts, the poor, the tax collectors, if they were to describe Jesus, I don't know if they'd use the word mean. But grace without truth is meaningless. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that, that unless we actually believe what we would maybe understand is the bad news that the Bible tells us, the, the good news actually doesn't have a place. That grace is needed when we recognize our need for grace. That Jesus came to help those who were sick and needed healing. But only those who realize they're sick will actually take him up on the offer. So grace and truth together is medicine. It's good medicine. And I think our world needs truth and grace together. Our world needs a revolution of Jesus followers that aren't going to play this game of polarization but they're going to hold intention and balance truth and grace. Grace invites us to be free, and truth sets us free. We need both. And we see that Jesus lived this perfectly. And in fact, it, we, we come from a faith tradition that, that, had a, that had a word for this. It was called the third way. Everybody say the third way. The whole idea of the third way was that throughout history, people polarize themselves usually in one, of, one or two ways. And, and repeatedly, we see Jesus fail to play that game. And we see this in John chapter 8. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, which begs the question, you know, if she was in the act of adultery, what were the religious leaders doing there anyways? Come on. We just, we just love to point out other people's sin in their lives without ever looking at our own. Like, what were they doing there? They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law. Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now what do you say? The question was a trap. We, we have a, an entire society, an entire culture that is looking at you, at me, at the church, at followers, and saying, what do you say? 
What do you say about this? What do you say about marriage? What do you say about immigrants? What do you say about this gender conversation? What do you say about sexuality? What do you say about entertainment? What do you say about this? What do you say about that? And it's this either-or trap. Our culture is trying to trap you and me into polarization. So this is the trap that Jesus is presented with. Jesus, what do you say? Jesus doesn't even respond, not in the way they wanted. But Jesus, check this out, bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. This is a famous statement. Many people know the statement, even when they don't know the Bible. Let he who is without sin throw the first stone. And the irony of the whole story is, is who is without sin in the story? When you're in church and you don't know the right answer, just say Jesus. Everybody say Jesus. Jesus is perfect and he's without sin and he stands there and says, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. Jesus, in his own standard, could have thrown a stone. story continues. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Don't you guys want to know what he wrote? Like this, I, every time I read this story, I'm like, I just wish I knew what he wrote. You know, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. You know, I've always thought because the older ones left first, they had the most sin in their lives, they had the most life experience, right? So they realized very quickly, okay, I'm not without sin. Uh, the younger ones were more arrogant and they stuck, stuck around a little bit longer. You know, maybe that's what happened. I like to think about what happened sometimes. And maybe Jesus wrote down, you know, he stooped down, he started writing in the, in the, in the sand names of their mistresses. Susan, that's you. He walks away. Betty, yeah, that's you. Yeah, Simon, that's you. He just goes through them all one by one. I don't know. It's, it's fun to guess what Jesus did sometimes. You can figure out what you think. And notice that Jesus doesn't address the woman until it's just her and Jesus. I I think this is critically important part of the story, part of the lesson. That Jesus doesn't address the woman until it's just her and Jesus. Jesus stands up for her in public. Jesus defends her. Jesus restores honor to her, restores dignity to her. So it was only Jesus left with the woman there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and live your life of, leave your life of sin. Thank you. Don't live your life of sin. Go now and leave. So that would be the polarization. It's all good. It's uh, just, just go live your life. No, he's holding the balance here. I don't condemn you, Grace invitation to living out their truth and her identity, go now and leave your life of sin. The third way, Jesus refuses to play the game of polarization. We'll see that in the book of Daniel too. 
the creativity of following God, of following Jesus in the shifting culture. The culture will want to polarize you. It wants to polarize me. It wants us to be uh, these, you know, Bible-bashing, truth-bearing people that actually have no grace, that are super annoying and arrogant, and so the whole world can write us off. Or they want us to be just full of grace. It's all good. Go and live your life of sin. That's, but we need to stay in the middle. We need to stay in the middle. And, and I love how Jesus protects the dignity and honor of this person. Because often when we deal with sin in our culture, we're not just dealing with sin, but we're dealing with people. And it takes the balancing act of grace and truth to honor the dignity and the image of God in every single person, but also inviting them to live a different story, a better story, the story that God's calling them to live. I'm going to invite the band up, and I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I think there's some here who have gotten caught in this dualistic game. This polarizing game where you think you have to choose between truth and grace. And Jesus invites you to a third way, a different way. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes for a second as we close. And I, I, I want to invite you to respond because I think you know who you are. Uh, I know where I tend to lean. I know when my life goes out of balance which way I tend to go. Some of you in this room, you find yourself in a shift in culture in Babylon and you've just become more rigid and right in your conversations with your friends, your family members, your co-workers, your, those around you. You've become rigid and it's actually isolating you from the very people that Jesus wants you to reach. If that's you this morning, I just want to invite you to put up your hand and just acknowledge, man, that's the way I slide. In polarization, I kind of get rigid and I get right at all costs. Thank you. Maybe you're on the other side. We live in a culture of tolerance and acceptance and and you don't really feel like you can stand for anything. And so you've, you've, all, you've, you've actually become a bit of a coward where Jesus is inviting you to stand and you end up sitting. Maybe because of fear that you don't want to offend, but Jesus is inviting you to a third way of loving people, but also standing for what's right and what's true. And if you're someone who maybe errs on that side and, 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 and God's calling you to take more of a stand than maybe you have, I just want to invite you to raise your hand. Father, I thank you that we are not the first ones to live in Babylon. Lord, we thank you for this culture. We thank you for where we get to live. There's so many great things about it. But yet, Lord, we know it's, it's a shifting culture. As the values and idols in our culture change and flip-flop, Lord, we're caught, we're caught in the, the shift. And Lord, you are calling us to 
remain aligned with you in your kingdom, to be salt on earth, to be light in this world. And Lord, there's some here this morning that have actually agreed with you that, that they're right in what they've communicated, but they haven't aligned themselves with how you communicated through Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them what it means to live out that truth in a gracious and loving way that is attractive and inviting for the very people, Lord, that you were so in love with that you came to die for. Lord, for those who have been afraid to take a stand, maybe out of fear for their own reputation, maybe out of fear of other things, out of fear of being misunderstood, out of fear of not being loving, Lord, I pray that your spirit would give them the creativity that you had, Jesus, where you were able to love that woman so well, but yet you didn't compromise on the, the invitation to live a better life. So Jesus, I thank you for the full life that you offer each and every one of us. And I pray that we would, as a people, as, as a community, that we would be known as people not just of truth, but of grace. And that we would live that balance so well, Lord, that people would find life here, they would find family here, they would find relationships here, Lord, because we're not a people that isolates them, we're a, we're a people that welcomes them. And I just want to point out for those of you who are in this room that um, you can relate to the woman in the story. I want you to know that Jesus loves you so ridiculously that the standard he has for you is not for your not to shame you, not to condemn you, but it's for your own well-being and your own good and he invites every single one of us to a better story. And if you're struggling this morning, maybe what you're carrying as you come in this place. Jesus invites you to a better story and he invites you to experience his grace and his forgiveness. So I just pray, uh, Father, that you would shower those that need your grace and forgiveness this morning, Lord, as they recognize the gap between the life they're living and the life you're calling them to, that they're not living the story worth telling that you've called them to live, that you would restore their identity as your son and daughter. In Jesus' name, we pray.